0: H section of the L ser- software series of slackware is Harfbuzz. What a great name. Don't harf my buzz, man. Harfbuzz. Harfbuzz is it calls itself a shaping engine and the documentation on harfbuzz.org, uh, which redirects to harfbuzz.github.io, is some of the most interesting documentation you are likely to ever read about this topic. I mean, it is absolutely fascinating. I wish I could just read it. I could just read it aloud make it a show, but I feel like that would be cheating. But there, there if you think about how text appears on your screen, and that, I mean, that'll do your head in, right? Because, like, how does text get there? Well couple of different ways. First of all, when you just turn on a Linux computer, let's say, and you're seeing uh, output on the screen, or you you don't log into the graphical user interface, you're looking at like what we usually call, uh, we usually just refer to as the console. C-O-N-S-O-L-E. Not K-O-N-S-O-L-E, which is a graphical terminal application for the KDE Plasma desktop. So you're looking at the console or the TTY, or or the Getty, whatever you want to refer to, that black screen with a bunch of text on it, that's one way of rendering text onto a screen. It is not the usual way, or maybe it's the usual way, but there's a fancier way. That that text is just, it's, it's a series of pixels a big array of pixels, and a couple of pixels are on, and a couple of are of them are off, to the extent that they form the shape of uh, L for some word, and then I, and then N, and then U, U, uh, and then X. Oh, you have Linux on screen. It's being rendered as text. Just that—that's just a process of of activating pixels and and turning them off. And, And that's done under a subsystem as well. But there you go, that's pretty simple. Now you start introducing the concept of fonts. Now you could have fonts back in the days of just a normal text console. Like when you install Slackware, it asks you what font you want to use for your, um, for the screen, you know, for like the console part. And there are supposedly lots of fonts. I mean, I've looked at, I've looked at them and... And, I mean, honestly, yes, you can tell the difference a little bit. But, I mean, most of it's basically all the same. You know, it's, again, pixels sort of, you know, it's like an LED display or something, or... Uh, LCD? Yeah, LC- LCD or LED. Anyway, it's it's one of those old style of displaying characters, building characters out of little squares, essentially. But once you fire up that graphic server, you've got pretty pictures going around on your screen, then we can start to get fancier with the text that we display. And the way that that can be done is with HarfBuzz. And the reason HarfBuzz has sort of... Um, I guess an advantage over other options. And I think the last episode or the episode before, I mentioned a, a, a different library for this kind of thing. I, I can't remember its name now, but it, it was there. And, uh, and Harf Buzz sort of does some similar stuff, it, it interprets, um, Unicode text sequences, or I guess ASCII as well, but but they talk a lot about Unicode because I guess that's ideally what we're all using now. Uh, it, it interprets Unicode strings and converts them into, into pretty shapes, into font glyphs. Now, that's something that most of us aren't ever going to cognizantly use. I mean, it's just going to be y- being used in the background. We're not going to... Graphite, that's what it was. Graphite 2, I think. Um, we're not going to be using it... Um, in you know intentionally, we're just going to be using it because we're using uh, Firefox, which actually does actually use Harfbuzz specifically. Um, so and KDE, I mean KDE uses it. Harfbuzz used to be based on uh, free type. Uh, and some libraries from I think Pango and Cute. It is no longer based on that. It 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 was completely redone I don't know relatively recently I guess and and now it's 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 its own thing and it has a lot of support for a lot of different font syst- or font rendering systems like OpenType and Apple Advanced Typography or AAT and it has found it, HarfBuzz itself is found across lots and lots of different uh, applications and desktop uh models and and it's just everywhere but you might think well w- why is it? Why, do, why? Why does it need to be so complex? And that's where it really gets interesting. And this, I, I, I highly recommend. Uh, whether you think you're interested in this or not, highly recommend going to read just the introductory stuff on harfbuzz.github.io. It's just so interesting. For instance, there's a letter in uh, Tamil, T A M I L. I could be saying that wrong. It's the letter. Um, well, I can't describe, I mean, it's, it's a letter, it's a letter, right? It, but when it's followed by a specific vowel sound, uh, uh, vowel sign, then those two letters have to be combined into a new letter. So it's a little bit like, um, if you think in English, which I do, um, then if you think about English A-E, like a lot of times historically, A-E would be combined into a diphthong of you know, the the A-E diphthong. I don't know what it's called. But you, you'll see that in, in like the the word ether, for instance, like ethernet, ether. Ether used to be spelt with a diphthong at the beginning. A-E combined, T-H-E-R. And eventually, you know, English kind of did away with diphthongs. I don't know why. I should look that up sometime. It's kind of fascinating. We kind of got away from those. And now we just put an E there instead. But you could imagine a system whereby A followed by E would then combine the A and the E together into a diphthong. Or a system in which, uh, for German, for instance, uh, as I understand it, the double S, like two S's, like like we would spell glass, for instance, G L A S S. In the double S might be combined into the capital B character that I've forgotten the name of already. I used to know the name of that thing, and I've I just completely realized I don't actually know the name of that anymore. But that one. So you you can you can kind of see where on computers sometimes the way a written language sort of needs to be, I guess, transcoded into a visual representation on a computer, it's its kind of more dynamic than you would possibly imagine at first. And maybe it's not necessary, but, I mean, after a fashion, it, it might be necessary because, I mean, you really only do have about 100 keys on a keyboard and some uh, writing systems have a lot more than 100 characters so you you know you can sure you can say okay well we'll double up okay well we'll triple up okay well we'll quadruple up and, but i mean at, at some point i imagine it, it must be it, it must be a little bit silly especially if if it's just a matter of hey if i type these two letters right after each other each other or these two characters right after each other, then yeah, combine them. Like that's a new, that should become a new thing. That's the kind of thing that um, HarfBuzz can do. Again, you're probably not going to use HarfBuzz directly, or or you might. But I mean, unless you are writing your own windows, windowing system or your own framework, you know, like the cute framework or something, unless you're doing that, whatever you are using on your computer right now, is probably already using HarfBuzz to generate what you know what you do. So you're not gonna you're not gonna need to interact with HarfBuzz. You're, you're the thing that you're using is already doing that for you. Um, and and I say this, of course, based on sort of like you being a user. Obviously, if you're a developer doing highly specialized things with text rendering and and, and so on, then yes, you you could use HarfBuzz. So that's HarfBuzz. High color dash icon, dash theme. This is the default fallback icon theme for the free desktop. You know, don't you miss the old days, the wild west days of desktops, where every desktop was a little bit different and you just didn't know what w- w- where, where to put files so that your that desktop would read them or integrate them into, into what it was showing you? No, you do not. I tricked you by saying don't you Miss you don't miss those days. Those were horrible days. They were they were days that that I I almost missed completely. But I got a little bit of it back in the early days, which by the way I've confirmed is pre two thousand and eight. I was looking. I was I had to restore my backup server because the desktop died, like the the hardware. Actually, has finally failed on it. So I, I've been restoring that or re- rebuilding that, I guess. And um, so, and that gave me an opportunity to kind of look through some some backup files and decide what I really needed to to continue to back up and so on. I found some screenshots from like 2008, December of 2008, and I was definitely using Linux by that point. So I pre- I, I was pre 2008. So I, I really do believe 2006 is the the canonical year of my Linux uh, journey. The start of my Linux journey. If I forget that later, just remind me. Oh, I should just put that on my website. Like, using Linux since 2006. That's what I should do. Okay, anyway, what I was trying to say is that back in the very, very old times, people could just build, you know, they, they would write desktops, or or really, window managers, I guess is what I'm actually talking about. And, you know, some of them would keep their icons in, in one directory, and some of them would use icons in a different directory. Some of them had special names for their icons, and some of them didn't. And so, like, if you built everything around one window manager, that's fine until you stopped using that window manager, for instance. And then kind of everything fell apart. And, like, on one hand, I mean, it's great that you spend time crafting your your, your own custom visual environment. But I think, on another hand, and I think probably this outweighs the first a lot of people just want sort of like they just want their computer to just kind of go you know like you don't you don't really want to have to fiddle around with all of the icon theming and placement and things like that and, and and obviously that evolves over time like early in your computer playing around on computer days you might you might have more time to carefully construct weird aspects of your computer and then as you get more and more sort of like i don't know you, you're doing stuff you know you're not just playing around on the computer, you're using the computer as a tool, that might change. I mean, that certainly was the case for me. The better I got at computers, the less I did the sort of the trivial, fun things on the computer and started doing, I don't know, heavier tasks. So, and, and I mean, I'm not saying that to be nostalgic. I'm, I'm I'm actually just saying, like, your priorities change over time. So, desktops needed to kind of, like, grow up, you know? Like, they needed to get they needed to start speaking a, a similar language. I don't know how much of this was influenced exactly by, I think it was Red Hat at the time. They were, they were doing, yeah, it was Red Hat slash Fedora, I guess. They were doing, I, I don't think it was Fedora yet is what, what I'm saying. is I think it was Red Hat Linux, not Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I think it was Red Hat Linux, which would later become Fedora. I think they were the ones at the time doing like, they, they, they developed an icon theme called Clear Looks. And that icon theme was, was one icon theme, one look, regardless of whether you installed GNOME or KDE. And the interesting thing is that at, at that time, the reason you would choose GNOME over KDE was purely a licensing concern. Like, if you look at early, early GNOME, it is almost indistinguishable. Well, I shouldn't say that. It is, it is a lot more like KDE then you would, like, you would, you'd probably look at it and refuse to believe that that was a GNOME desktop. I mean, not only do the icons look the same, if you're looking at it on Red Hat or Fedora at the time, or rather, Red Hat at the time, Fedora later, um, it's just, like, the layout. I mean, the GNOME layout, we drastically different. Like, I'm talking about before GNOME 2. Like, the, the, the menu button was down in the lower left corner. You know, it was, it was a lot like KDE. So anyway, point is, Desktops needed to become a little bit more unified, so something, not unified, but just speak the same language. They needed to, to, you needed as a user to be able to know that when you downloaded this uh, icon theme, if you put it in this location, then that's where your desktop's going to look. So anyway, as, as, as that developed, this organization called freedesktop.org started to define specifications. And that's all they were, is just specifications. And a specification, in case we're all not clear on this, a specification is just an invitation for lots of different people to look at the same document, so that everyone receives the same answer to a question that they might have. So if you're thinking to yourself, I'm making an application, I wonder where I should put, and I'm going to develop some custom, um, I don't, well, I keep going back to icons, I guess because this is an icon theme package, but let's say you're making an application, and you're thinking, where should I put the okay button? Should I put it in the upper left, or in the middle of the screen, or on the far right? uh upper right or the bottom right you know like wh- where should i put the thing centered in the in the bottom well maybe free desktop i mean i actually don't know cuz i haven't looked uh maybe free desktop defines the standard location for that sort of widget then you would know oh yeah people people using gnome or or kde Plasma desktop or um, XFCE, they would sort of have it in their in their muscle memory and their expectation that this button would be right here. So that's where I'll put it. And similarly, the freedesktop.org defined a standardized icon theme for the Linux and POSIX desktop. That includes the location of the files, the file formats, the way that those files are found, the way that you would install an icon for a, an application that you w- had written. So the icon didn't exist before, but n- you, when someone installs your application, that icon should exist. So where does that go? Where does that get saved? As a developer, you know, you have kind of control over all of those things. You could you can just decide that you're going to put everything in the user's home directory, and that's possibly fine. You would want to look at the free desktop specification of what directory structure you would want to use, you would want to put it in dot config maybe, or dot local, depending on what kind of files they are. But you could also, if if you wanted to, just dump everything into their documents directory. Call it a day. Not ideal, um, but you could do that. So the free desktop project just gave everyone a single document to treat as the single source of of authority or or truth for these questions of where should I put this. Asset Or how does this thing work? And so on. That's the icon theme specification. Now, what the icon, high color icon theme is, that is a, an icon theme that is meant to be, to encompass all possible icons within a free desktop setup. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to have a specific application icon, but it'll have a fallback application icon. This protects users from installing an icon theme that they think is really cool, but that maybe the icon theme uh, provider hasn't really thought through through yet. Like they didn't remember that they were going to need an icon for system preferences or system settings, whatever you call it on your, on your desktop. That's okay. As long as you've got this fallback theme installed, when there is no other icon found, then we can use this fallback theme. That's the high color icon theme. Almost out of the H section here, the the next one is Hunspell, H-U-N-S-P-E-L-L, which was apparently based on something called MySpell. I'd never heard of MySpell before, but I guess it must have been uh, an alternative to, or rather Hunspell was an alternative to it. Hunspell is a Apparently, one of the most popular spell checking libraries in existence uh, that's what they say I mean not in those exact words, but they say they're very popular and they're used in like LibreOffice and Firefox, and I think Chrome and I think it said Mac OS as well like it's 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 a bunch of places, and it's a library that tries its darndest to spell check the, the the written <laughs> language, and that is no small feat. I I used to think it was a pretty straightforward thing, because, I mean, we have dictionaries, right? I mean, we have big books of words. So if a word isn't in that book, then it's wrong, right? But not always. It turns out that that language is a, a really malleable thing, and it's meant to be. Like, that's a, that's a feature, not a bug. We want language to be dynamic and adjustable for different contexts, but that's then pretty difficult to spell check and i mean i don't care what your favorite word processor is you have if if you are in i guess niche hobbies like i, I don't know uh, unix and linux computing or wargaming or tabletop gaming and and lots of other things probably i just those are the, the sort of things that leap to my mind as as they're close to home um but i mean you don't hear the word architecting very often and yet it's a valid term or at least it was for a while I, th- I think we're still saying it in technology and not only are these sort of play on words like reasonable they're, they're important like they help people within a group communicate ideas ideally better i mean sometimes it's not better and and we use terms that we just decide that's how we're gonna say this now for for whatever reason i mean sometimes it's it's beating around the bush it's really talking about something that would be easier to say in 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 fewer words in fact i i i would probably argue that that's frequently the case at least in technology um but but we do adapt our language a lot when we're writing and asking a computer to spell check that can be really really difficult and i i don't think any word processor or dictionary library system really has it down yet and you know i mean heck we're all talking about ai right now right because we have to um I mean, if if there's a place where AI would be useful, that would probably be a place. Now, whether I would want the AI to be tethered to some mega AI somewhere so that it can fully adapt to the whims of my linguistic fancy, I am not so sure about that. Actually, I am sure about that. I don't want it. Um, but, I mean, that's the kind of thing, I think, that's the kind of processing power and kind of adaptability you would need to have in order to have, like, a sensible... Spell check and and it drives me crazy because I do run into that quite frequently and probably to to relieve myself of that burden I should probably start maintaining personal dictionaries for specific um I wanted to say namespaces but that's not really right but that's kind of what I mean like if I'm writing an article at work about technology, then maybe I want this set of rules to be followed, while if I'm writing an article on my personal blog about gaming or something, then m- maybe I want a different file to be used, because suddenly, um, you know, a term that, that is correctly two different words, you know, two separate words, maybe in a, con- in a certain context, smashing them together and making them one phrase just makes sense, or, or maybe it doesn't make sense, but maybe that's what I want to do. So Hunspell has uh, a lot of work carved out for itself. And it does do a, a really... It makes a noble effort to make all of that work. And it does that by defining uh, these things called affic- a- a- affixes. A-F-F-I-X. An, an affix. And affix. And that could be a suffix. It could be a preface. It could be... Or a prefix, rather. Um, it could be whatever. But it, it's parts of words. It's little segments of words that sometimes maybe get... Cr- stuck onto another word, right or wrong, and again, there is kind of no right or wrong in language, so if you want to say, oh, right, well, um, I had to, uh, d, d, What would it be? I don't know. D-deploy that. I I, I had to D-deploy that because you you deployed it, but then you had to to stop deploying it. So you D-deployed it. That's not a real word and should not be a real word. But let's say that for whatever reason, that's the feeling you want to to evoke. You you want to evoke, maybe, through language, the, the great trouble that you had to go to to stop an application from running you deployed it, and then because this person over in that department was um, was waffling on whether that should be available, you had to go and de-deploy it. Well, if you want hun spell to understand that as a word then it may be able to figure that out because if d d e is a valid prefix for hun spell then there might be a rule in there that says yes you could put d in front of something else to uh sort of reverse it and that's and that's fine ideally that's that's somewhat how it would happen uh probably a, a a more realistic example that's a lot less sort of uh dynamic is uh html and xml documents when you spell check i don't know if you i write in doc sometimes and if you've ever tried to spell check a document with a bunch of special tags in it like xml has every other line then <laughs> you get a lot of false positives or no a lot of positive negatives or something like that um because it's spell checking those tags. So you know you've got things like para and program listing, all one word and and so on and and or ordered list and or rather itemized list or or yeah, ordered list and itemized list. is that what they are? Um, whatever they are that they, they're they're special tags. We understand that they're just XML tags opening and closing. We don't actually want them spell checked, or maybe you do. Maybe you want to make sure that all your paras are paras and not pars. so, Maybe you do want those spell checked. Hunspell luckily can can tell the difference between an XML tag and your actual text. All right, so as installed on Slackware, Hunspell doesn't really work at least for me. If you try to do here's a docbook file for instance XML. oh well it just well, it works now because I installed this stuff. But before, it was saying cannot um, use or cannot find en underscore us dot aff, I think, the affix file. Or maybe it was the dot dic, the dictionary file. I don't remember. But I couldn't find one of those files. So uh, if, if that happens to you, which I... I feel like it probably will, because I don't see that there are any affix or dictionary files installed with Hunspell on Slackware, then you can go to uh, cgit, that's the letter c, c cgit.freedesktop.org slash libreoffice slash dictionaries slash tree slash en slash en underscore us, well, actually, so stop at the en, I guess, and that'll give you all the, the, the contents of the en directory, and there's a bunch of files there. Now the, the CGit uh, has, I guess, no functionality, or maybe it's my browser that can't figure out how to show me this file without sort of wrapping CGit around it. But I couldn't get to sort of like a raw view of that file, and every time I tried to download the file, it downloaded that file in HTML. So you're not, you're, I think you're going to have to either clone this repository yourself onto your local computer and then extract the files from there, or you can click on a file that you want, like en underscore gbaff, and then just select everything within the file, like the thing that it shows you. Scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Oh, that's a very long file. Why is... GB so long, and I I don't remember the US one being that long. And then copy that, and then just paste that into a a document called en_gb.aff. And then do 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 the same thing with the dictionary file. Now that is long. That's something like forty thousand lines of text or something, or forty US. it's really really long. But you can do that. You can just select and then go to the very very bottom of the page. And oh, this is this is even longer. Actually, wow, this is like 90,000, over 90,000 lines. Uh, And then just, you know, hit shift to select all of them, copy it, and then paste that into a file called en underscore gb dot dic. Now you've got those files. So now if you do hunspell dash p for path dot dash d for dictionary en underscore gb dot dic example. .xml. That should work, except it doesn't work. Interesting. There we go. No.dic. Just en underscore gb for the uh, dash d for the dictionary definition. And now I'm checking this this example.xml file as a, as a, with British spelling instead of US spelling, which is another thing that I struggle with actually, because in real life, I live in New Zealand, which uses mostly, generally, the Great Britain spelling, Queen's English, I guess, or King's English. I don't know what they call it now. Um, whereas a lot of the stuff that I work on at work is written standardized for US English. So on my system, how do I get, how do i get how do i get those to sort of play nicely together it's it's a weird problem to have that you don't really think about um so that's hunspell working and the way that it is working is because i got those dictionary files and those affix files defined the path with a dash p and then to the path of where i saved those files which in my case is just in this demo directory so i just put a dot and then dash d for the dictionary which don't make the mistake I just made, which is try to give it the actual file. Just tell it the abbreviation, so the the stuff before the dot. So either en underscore us or en underscore gb or en underscore au or whatever, whatever language you're using. That's it. Now there's a bunch of other... Um, Uh, binaries with this, with Hunspell, and I did start to kind of look through them, but I kind of got overwhelmed with all the... they're they're very uh, sort of... they're utilitarian. So, like, there's Affix Compress, which formats a long list of of affixes in a specific format, I guess, into an affix affix file for Hunspell. There's Analyze, which I think checks your affix list. There's Chamorph, which um, changes, uh, like really changes things like the the tenses or the the voices of a document apparently it can do. I, I couldn't get that to work, but it could just be that maybe that's not really the Maybe that's not an English thing. Maybe it's supposed to be... The, the example they give is Hungarian, for instance. So I don't know if that's a, a very Hungarian-specific thing or what. Then there is the hunspell command. That's the thing that, that actually does launch if you do hunspell-p path to your dictionary files-d, dash the... the, the the dictionary that you want to, to utilize, uh, which by the way, can be a list. You could do en underscore gb comma en underscore us to, I guess, default to one and then fall back on the other. So that is, that's an interface that launches. It's an in-curses interface. I don't love it. I don't know how much there is that I could do to sort of customize it, but really, really, like, it feels weird because it only shows you sort of like two or three lines of your text, which I, and then you've got like this whole, I've got like, so I've got literally one sentence at the very top of the page, and then I've got 20 lines of empty space, and then I've got, my my little menu down at the bottom where you you can accept the spelling or um uh, i guess that's it really accept repl insert uncap stem that's interesting uh so yeah there's like there's one line of menu options at the bottom and there's literally one sentence at the top of the window and there's just blank space between and i'm not sure why it's doing that as i go further it'll show me like two lines or three lines or four lines so it's it's it, it but then and then you think okay well so it's it's increasing no but then it stops it just goes it it seems to go four lines is the most i can seem to get it to show me at one time it's it's really strange and i'm not sure why and you might think that it would be worth investigating and looking into config options and it it would be if i was going to use hunspell i'm not going to use hunspell directly not, not like this anyway as i've said i usually i'm i'm usually typing in emacs and with emacs i just use the the spell check that it has, which I think is I spell, or maybe A spell, but it's, it's one of those two, and, and that seems to work fine for me. I, I mean, I don't love it, I don't hate it. I don't know that I would love or hate Hun spell either, to be honest. I'm not sure that I really love spell checkers. I, I feel like it's a very sort of manual process, that it has to be a manual process, really, you know? Like, you just, you have to do the spell check at the end, and it feels tedious, and it feels like work, and it's not that fun, but You know, just put on some good music, do your spell check, don't submit documents that you have not spell checked ever to anything. I'm guilty of it myself. Shouldn't do it. So don't, don't you make that same mistake either i mean i try not to make the mistake i try to minimize it generally i spell check like if i haven't spell checked something it is a mistake but it's easy to make that mistake because it isn't a fun process okay and Hunspell unfortunately doesn't you know doesn't magically make it fun i don't know what that would look like maybe maybe some animated uh little test, text things to to make things fun Maybe I don't know. These are just ideas. Hyphen. That's the next one. the The last one in the H block. For real. Uh, this is uh, related to Hunspell. It's within Hunspell's Git repository, so it's it's it it must be strongly related to it. It is a a library, as its name suggests, to uh, help hyphenate things. I don't love hyphenation. I, I I wish it was something that we didn't have to do, but I should say, I don't love hyphenation across lines. That's what I don't like. Uh, And I wish it was something that we didn't have to worry about, but, I mean, it kinda is, because it just looks weird when you've got, like, a long word that doesn't fit on the line, so you just skip to the next line, because then that line looks incomplete. So you hyphenate the word. So for instance, let's say you've got a word like, um, I don't know, actually, uh, the only word that comes to mind right now is example, but that's not very long. But let's say that that was it. So you might do EX dash, and then next line, A-M-P-L-E. And the reader knows that the EX on that first line isn't the complete word, because there's a hyphen at the end. So remember EX, go to the next line, and then put those two words together in your head example okay got it so that's all hyphenation does in the english language anyway and hyphen is a a library within hunspell that helps helps identify when when that's happening and that's it that's all the h's in the library software series of slackware let's go take a coffee break (laughs) back. I have coffee. Hopefully you do too. This is uh, I think it's called like unwind or something like that. It's from the the local which is an hour away bin in. So that's just one of those stores where you bring a big bucket and fill it with dry goods. And one of those dry goods is coffee. This is mostly unwind, I think is I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. It might, might be traverse. It's one of those two. And it has this really really sort of rich under taste if if you know what I mean like it's you 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 drink it and after you've taken that you know after you've taken a sip of coffee there's this taste that lingers in the back of your mouth and it's it's kind of a I hate doing this because it's it's such a I feel like everyone does this but I mean it's kind of a chocolatey kind of uh, flavor not really though but you know what I mean like that kind of um earthy is chocolate earthy like, I think it could be earthy. It's kind of like this rich, earthy sort of aftertaste, and it's really, really pleasant is what I'm trying to get to. It's really nice. It's funny trying to describe tastes because it either sounds like you're... I mean, from what I've just said, it probably sounds like drinking dirt. Like, that's... I mean, that's... to me, that's what I've just said. But it, it's not like that. It, it's actually... it's really pleasant. It's got a really rich kind of flavor after the flavor. and And I imagine... None of that information does you any good, dear listener, because you probably can't find this coffee where you are. I don't even know where the coffee comes from. I mean, from ben but I don't think that's a global thing. I think that's just a New Zealand thing. All right, so that's the coffee report. And uh, now we should take some listener feedback, which I have some from Matthias. Matthias has an interesting linguistic note that he sent me about uh, the the thing that I was talking about, I think in episode, yeah, 526. He, uh, I was talking about how computer, the, the language of computers was essentially English. And whether that was good or bad depends on a lot of considerations. Like, are we talking about cultural identity, or are we talking about efficiency of communication? Because really, those are two almost completely opposed things. And you know, I get annoyed at you humans, uh, I meant us humans, for for a lot of things, but this isn't actually one of them. I don't feel like it's our fault. When language developed, or languages developed, whichever way it happened, nobody really knows, uh, we we didn't, there was no way for humans to coordinate about how a language should be built, what sounds it ought to use, and, and so on. There was no coordination effort, it just wasn't possible. So we each got stuck with a language with implications w- in our lives of of a of whatever culture developed that language or, or how that language helped shape a culture. It's not really something we have a choice in, and there's so much history there at this point, I don't see how we're ever going to get away from it. And if you view language as... Sort of a kind of an art form, then there's a really good argument that that shouldn't ever happen. But it's inefficient. That's the problem. I mean, if I want to call someone up in France and just have a chat with them, I can't really do that unless I brush up on my French or they brush up on their English. And there's that argument again for a common kind of uh, a trade language or a, in this context, a computer language, something where we can all agree, this is what computers speak. As I said in the previous episode, that is difficult as well because now we're looking at, well, who gets who gets to be the computer language or we could say, well, nobody gets to be the computer language. We'll use a constructed language instead, but now you're saying, okay, well, now everyone has to learn this constructed language in addition to their own language, in addition to maybe a trade language and so on. So, I mean, really, I think the, the answer, the correct answer, is to have that external third-party constructed language like Esperanto or or something. I'm just saying Esperanto because it's a it's a language that exists. I'm not saying it's the best constructed language even, but but it is one of them and it's relatively uh popular. So, that's not what we have today. We have English as kind of the de facto computer language because a lot of programming languages were developed in in America for for, for I mean that's where computers started, you know, like that's where that that whole thing began. That's where the industry started. So that's that's what got adopted. Now, the interesting thing is that Matthias says the German version of Microsoft Excel makes use of uh, translated function names. So if you're doing like a function in your Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, apparently, in in Germany, the word if, for instance, becomes, uh, is it when or when? W-E-N-N. I don't know how the German pronunciation of that would be i, I kind of want to think that it's ven but i don't know um trim t-r-i-m becomes oh boy gl- glotten. and uh if matthias says for me being a german native speaker this translation is weird more often than not and nondescriptive on top of that so take glotten for example when i searched the list i just said glotten. I I'll bet that's not how a German says that word. Glatten, glatten, uh, glatten, gl- glatten. Uh, for example, when I searched the list of built-in functions for something like trim, I disregard glatten, which means to me make a surface smooth and not remove white space to the left and the right of a string. So I think that that is the most, that's that's the end of his email. I think that is the most fascinating observation. I mean, the problem with with saying, I guess, no, we're not going to have this third-party language. We're going to use localized language for, like, functions of a computer. Well, the danger is there, you'd you, you have to have, like, not not just an exact translation, but the the exact translation of the intended use because frankly the word trim like if you're not a computer user certainly if you're not a programmer or or even i guess a spreadsheet user the word trim to you would depending on what where what you what you do for a living or what you do in your spare time it might mean something completely different like trimming for a barber would mean take the hair that is on my head right now and cut an inch off the bottom. If you're a, a person who works with fabric, then trimming might be, again, kind of cutting off the, the bottom part of some fabric, and then that's probably all that means. Uh, and, and so trim, T-R-I-M, trim doesn't mean to most people people, I don't think, take a string of letters, and if there's white space at the beginning or the end, remove the white space. Like, that is not something that most people think about. Most people look at a word, and they don't see the white space. That's just, you know, that's how words work. You, you put, you put them f- it far enough away from another word so that you can make them distinct. That's, that's how that works. What is trim? So, trim in computer context is even not an exact translation of the english word trim which i think in a way is an argument for that third-party constructed language for computers of course i'm saying this sort of as a as an aspirational thing that is likely never to occur because everything's too far along now i would i would be shocked if computers were suddenly restructured such that they only used a constructed language. And and frankly, you know, as I've said before, that would be another barrier, because then we'd all have to learn the constructed language. How much of a barrier is that? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's fascinating, I think, just to hear about that that translation subtlety. It's not an error, but it's it's a subtlety that just maybe doesn't quite work in context of, again, computer functionality i think that's it for listener feedback thank you matthias for that and it's essentially all i have for the show today although i did want to mention one thing an observation i guess And that is that uh, lately I've been uh, messing around with distributions, uh, as you've probably heard in previous episodes, there was Garuda Linux, and uh, there have been some external factors that have made me look to other distributions for a specific laptop, uh, and my backup server, my backup server died, so I had to refresh that, and lots of just sort of things that have occurred that have made me look at distributions. I mean, not away from Slackware, Slackware is running happily on my desktop, but for my, uh, for a laptop and for my backup server, I've been, I've been messing around. And you might think, you know, logically, well, why not just run Slackware on the backup server. And I think that would be the right thing to do. I mean, not the morally right thing. I, I mean, like the right thing, the, the right choice to make as an admin, uh, the, the more of the same distribution that you can be running on your machines, the easier it is across the board for you to administer them, right? Because then you only have to figure something out once on one machine, and then you can replicate it very quickly and easily across all other machines, either with a quick scripted, uh, fix or Ansible or, or some kind of automation, uh, software such as that. So that would be the correct choice, but I'm, I, am i am not doing this for, for, this is, none of this is mission critical, this is my own personal stuff, and one of the opportunities, one of the things that having a backup server, for instance, uh, affords me the opportunity to do is to keep tabs on other things happening within, within Linux, and, and so I've been looking at different distributions, and as I've been doing that, for fun, it has occurred to me that there are two stages of, of distribution uh trialing or auditioning and they're deceptive they're tricky so the the and you know i mean and i think there are sub stages within each of these stages but the the, the first stage i'm just going to say the, it really is the first impression and this first impression thing can be you you can look at it just as the first couple of milliseconds uh maybe that's hyperbole but you know if the first the first I don't know 5 minutes with an, with a distribution that that would arguably say well that's your first impression you could even go farther back and say well what kind of impression did it make to a to to bring you to it in the first place, what kind of reputation does it have online? Do people speak highly of it? Do lots of people recommend it? Is their website easy to use and so on? So you could you could go through all of that. But what I'm talking about really is is after all that stuff, and you've you've decided to try this distribution, you've installed it on your machine. The first impression I'm going to call uh, I'm going to say is in this context is the time that you spend to make sure that that's the right distribution. Because you've been around the block a couple of times. You think, you know what? I need to make sure that this distribution is going to do the things that I need it to do. And so you do your, your little audition. I guess that would probably be the best, the, the better term for this. The the, the audition. To, to make sure that the distribution is capable of doing the things that you normally do. I like tipping scales drastically. So the classic split of like 80-20 works here the audition is is accounting for the 80% of the things that you expect your computer to do because that's what you normally do for most of the day so you audition it you you look at it and and you install the software you look at the repository you see how much it offers you see you you ensure that it has an easy easy access to to the tools that you that you have come to rely upon and you get pretty excited because it passes the audition and you think perfect 80% of the stuff that i need it to do it does really easily. This is great. This is a perfect distribution for me. This is, this is the one I'll use. And so you settle in on it and you install it and you install it maybe on a couple of computers or you just install it on the computer that you needed it for, but you, you are all in. You you spend the afternoon setting up that distribution. You've got all of the things that you want running, running. Everything seems to be going well. And then a week passes and you get around to doing some of those 20% things. Some of the things that you don't do every day, you just do occasionally on your computer, and 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 this is the first time you've had to do it on this distribution. So you sit down and you start doing the twenty percent thing, and suddenly you realize that this distribution doesn't really make that super easy for whatever reason. And I'm struggling to come up with an example, to be honest. And I should I should have it uh, on on the Right right here at the forefront of my brain, but I, I can't think of a specific example, but they're there, whatever it might be, it might be the I don't know the firewall configuration utility that you really, really rely upon just isn't there. The backup tool that you that you want to use isn't at the right version for it to synchronize with your clients um, and then you realize, oh, I should have stuck with that one distribution. Um, you know whatever it might be you're realizing that for 80% of the tasks, this distribution is exactly what you wanted. But for that one thing that you do that, you know, once a week, this distribution is failing. Actually, here is an example, and I I don't want to give names because I don't want to slander any distribution while trying to speak very generically about a process. So I'm just going to say, I tried a distribution on a laptop, it seemed to be really, really nice. All the tools that I remembered from having played around with it, you know, ten years ago, were all there. It was it, it was strangely familiar because of that experience ten years ago, but but also new and fresh. And they had a really long support uh, contract or whatever a support uh, support span lifecycle and and it just felt like this could be a new direction for for that that secondary distribution in my life and the laptop that i had it installed on just coincidentally has a i think a tiger lake uh, cpu and for whatever reason the sound chip on within that chipset within that arrangement the distribution just couldn't handle it just didn't know what to do couldn't couldn't find the sound card at all just had no idea that there was sound couldn't play sound couldn't record sound refused to accept that a sound card was present it had a kind of special configurator where you could go in and try to try to set up the sound card and it just failed it just said it couldn't do it didn't offer a solution on how to how to fix it of course it, it was probably a new kernel or a new kernel module I knew that much but did I want to spend that much time getting a sound card on this laptop working? Probably not. I mean, and I've said this in the past, very frequently, the right distribution for a new Linux user is the one that works. That's the long and short of it. If if it works with your hardware, that's the right distribution for you. And in this case, not a new Linux user, but an impatient one today. I, I needed something running on the laptop sooner than later, and the fact that the initial install failed to pick up the sound card was in this case, a deal breaker, even though that computer maybe wouldn't use a sound card all that often, but it just, it, it it was one, it was the one thing that sometimes I did want on that computer and it was completely missing and would require a lot of work to get it integrated. Whereas installing a different distribution, picked up the sound card right away, was working from, from the very start. So moral of the story then is the first impression that that initial audition the 80% one that's great but it is only 80% and if you're looking at a distribution and you're considering it for your desktop or your laptop or just a home server that you don't even use all that often, whatever it might be, I think it's it's fair to say that the that audition stage it it needs to be more than the the eighty percent It needs to be a hundred percent, which obviously is impossible because you're gonna want to do things with a computer in six months that you didn't anticipate today during your audition you 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 didn't think that you would ever need such and such a feature or such and such an application or whatever and that's fine but uh, you know essentially a functional 100% not a literal 100% but a functional 100% 99.9% you you, you have to evaluate it pretty thoroughly uh to really declare i guess that distribution as uh, the one that's right for you and i think it's really really easy cuz i do it all the time myself and it's really really easy to 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 get up to the 80% mark or, or whatever, obviously I'm just making up percentages here, but you get it up to a certain point and you think, okay, well, that's that's enough right there. that That's everything. It's all I can think of. Well, you're probably not thinking of something then because there's yet more to check out. And it, it, realistically, this is the kind of thing that could be, if not automated, it could be scripted. You could have a script of the things that you need to check in a distribution. And I may actually start working on something like that for myself. I used to have one. I mean, I don't know if it was a literal, like, physical list, but I I had a thing where I would, like, if I was going to... Before purchasing a laptop, I would go to a store, I would run Linux on the laptop at the store, and I would verify specific things, you know, webcam, sound, touchpad, I mean, obviously the screen, um keyboard layout i don't i don't know what else it was but you know i I had like a a checklist of of things that were common problems enough sl- suspending and awakening from suspend that sort of thing that that i would verify before spending money on the laptop i haven't bought a, a computer in a while now so i haven't had to go through that that checklist but that is something that i would that i i had for a while um and i think that's important we have to we have to kind of do the dude diligence which you know i mean that's in in one way that's one of the dangers of distributions of of distro hopping of looking at different distributions of there being different distributions now you have to look at the weirdest things across different distributions and it's usually not the distribution it is the the combination of the time that you chose to look at the distribution and the hardware that you chose to put that distribution on and where that distribution happens to be at today when you downloaded the iso if it's one kernel version behind that other distribution that you were thinking about trying then that other one is going to win because it's got the the latest kernel it's got all the latest drivers that that you're you're going to need for that new laptop that you have or whatever the scenario and and so you know that combination of factors influences uh, your choice. It, it, would it be better if there was like one distribution? I, I don't know, because then, then we would all be looking at one distribution, and if we looked at it today, but it didn't get the kernel update till tomorrow, then it would be the wrong distribution. And then what do you do? Where do you go? Who do you turn to? So, I mean, maybe there could be a better mechanism for getting those the 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 latest greatest kernels or or for for figuring out which kernel is good for which laptop you know whatever i don't know lots of different solutions and and not really a, a single problem and possibly not even a problem at all it's just a thing to consider if you're looking at different distributions for whatever reason remember that that First of all, you are looking at that distribution at a point in time and you're evaluating that distribution up to a certain point. Make sure that you've evaluated it as completely as you possibly can for its intended purpose, because it, it's better to to sort of look at it with scrutiny than to be disappointed later on, or or to have to you know worse still have to do a bunch of extra work to sort of correct its course, or to just uninstall it and install some other distribution over it. All of that just takes time. It, it's frustrating. You feel disappointed. You feel betrayed by the distribution. Whatever the the emotions are bundled up with that whole experience. You, you want to avoid that. You want to. Evaluate you and audition a distribution as completely as possible. And if it takes a physical list that you can check through, maybe that's something to consider. I don't know. Just some thoughts about distributions on a show that that advertises regularly that it really only cares about one distribution and thinks all other distributions are the wrong way to go about things. So those are thoughts. Take them for what they're worth. Um, And for what it is worth, I found some really great little distributions for my backup server. Well, a distribution for my backup server, a distribution for my laptop, and I'm quite happy where I, I landed, I think, overall. So that's neither here nor there. It's just the status report of of the things that I'm not running Slackware on. They're, they're running other things, and, and it's, it's fun stuff to explore the, the full spectrum of Linux. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Clatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, or tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music contact with Central Earth Control at 0200.